When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America United States constitutional law is the body of law governing the interpretation and implementation of the United States Constitution. The subject mainly concerns the scope of power of the United States federal government as compared to the individual states and the fundamental rights of individuals. As the ultimate authority on matters of constitutional interpretation, the decisions of the Supreme Court of the United States make up a large portion of constitutional law. Interpreting the Constitution and the Authority of the Supreme Court the power of judicial review. Early in its history, in Marbury v. Madison, 1803, and Fletcher v. Peck, 1810, the Supreme Court of the United States declared that the judicial power granted to it by Article III of the United States Constitution included the power of judicial review, to consider challenges to the constitutionality of a state or federal law. According to this jurisprudence, when the court measures a law against the Constitution and finds the law wanting, the court is empowered and indeed obligated to strike down that law. In this role, for example, the court has struck down state laws for failing to conform to the contract clause, see, for example, Dartmouth College v. Woodward, or the Equal Protection Clause, see, for example, Brown v. Board of Education, and it has invalidated federal laws for failing to arise under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, see, for example, United States v. Lopez. Scope and Effect the Supreme Court's interpretations of constitutional law are binding on the legislative and executive branches of the federal government, on the lower courts in the federal system, and on all state courts. This system of binding interpretations or precedents evolved from the common law system, called stare decisis, where courts are bound by their own prior decisions and by the decisions of higher courts. While neither English common law courts nor continental civil law courts generally had the power to declare legislation unconstitutional, only the power to change law, the United States Supreme Court has long been understood to have the power to declare federal or state legislation unconstitutional. Prudential limits, the principles of justiciability. Before deciding a constitutional question, the Supreme Court may consider whether the court can avoid the constitutional question by basing its decision on a non-constitutional issue at dispute. For example, if a federal statute is on shaky constitutional footing but has been applied to the challenging party in a manner that does not implicate the basis for the constitutional claim, the Supreme Court will not decide whether the statute might be unconstitutional if it were applied differently. Or, when reviewing a decision of a state's highest court, the court may avoid the constitutional question if the state court's decision is based on an independent and adequate state law grounds. Federal courts consider other doctrines before allowing a lawsuit to go forward. Actual dispute, the lawsuit concerns a case or controversy under the meaning of Article 3, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution. Standing, the party bringing the suit must have, 1. Particularized and concrete injury, 2. A causal connection between the complaint of conduct and that injury, and 3. A likelihood that a favorable court decision will redress the injury. Ripeness, a party will lack standing where his slasher case raises abstract, hypothetical, or conjectural questions. Mootness, a party is seeking redress over a case that no longer has a basis for dispute, though there are limited exceptions. Political question, the issues raised in the suit are unreviewable because the Constitution relegates it to another branch of government. 
Consistent with these doctrines, the court considers itself prohibited from issuing advisory opinions where there is no actual case or controversy before them. See Muskrat v. United States, 219 U.S. 346, 1911. These doctrines, because they apply to all federal cases whether of constitutional dimension or not, are discussed separately in the article on federal jurisdiction. Differing views on the role of the court. There are a number of ways that commentators and justices of the Supreme Court have defined the court's role, and its jurisprudential method. Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas are known as originalists. Originalism is a family of similar theories that hold that the Constitution has a fixed meaning from an authority contemporaneous with the ratification, although opinion as to what that authority is varies, see discussion at originalism, and that it should be construed in light of that authority. Generally, originalism stands for the principle that the Constitution should be interpreted according to its meaning in the late 18th century. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Felix Frankfurter are associated with judicial restraint, the idea that the Supreme Court should decide as few cases as possible and on the narrowest possible grounds in order to allow the democratic process to play out without judicial interference wherever possible, for example, by denying writ of certiorari. Stephen Breyer generally advocates purposivism, an approach that places more emphasis on statutory purpose and congressional intent. Other justices have taken a more instrumentalist approach, believing it is the role of the Supreme Court to reflect societal changes. They often see the Constitution as a living, changing and adaptable document, thus, their legal rationale will sometimes be in stark contrast to originalists. Compare, for example, the differing opinions of Justices Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a more instrumentalist justice. Finally, there are some justices who do not have a clear judicial philosophy, and so decide cases purely on each one's individual merits. Federalism. Political power in the United States is divided under a scheme of federalism, in which multiple units of government exercise jurisdiction over the same geographical area. This manner of distributing political power was a compromise between two extremes feared by the framers, the efficiency of tyranny when power is overly centralized, as under the British monarchy, on one end of the spectrum, and the ineffectiveness of an overly decentralized government, as under the Articles of Confederation, on the other. Supporters of federalism believed that a division of power between federal and state governments would decrease the likelihood of tyranny, which on a federal level would be much more concerning than its occurrence locally. The framers felt the states were in the best position to restrict such movements. Another frequently raised value of federalism is the notion that since the states are much closer to the people, they can be more responsive to and effective in resolving the localized concerns of the public. Federalism represented a middle ground model of management consisting of divided powers between the governments of the individual states and the centralized federal government. The Constitution assigns the powers of the federal government to the legislative, Article I, Executive, Article II, and Judicial, Article III, branches, and the Tenth Amendment provides that those powers not expressly delegated to the federal government are reserved by the states or the people. The legislative, powers committed to the U.S. Congress, Article I. Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution enumerates many explicit powers of Congress. The Federal Commerce Power. Congress is authorized to regulate commerce with foreign nations, and among the several states, and with the Indian tribes under Article I, Section 8, Clause 3 of the Constitution. Important early cases include United States v. E.C. Knight Company, 1895, which held that the Federal Sherman Act could not be applied to manufacture of sugar because commerce succeeds to manufacture and is not a part of it. Essentially, the court cabined commerce as a phase of business distinct from other aspects of production. In the Shreveport rate cases, 1914,
the court permitted congressional regulation of railroad lines because Congress was regulating the channels of commerce and although the regulation was on interstate rail lines, the effect of the interstate lines was direct so as to concern interstate commerce. In Schechter Poultry, the court invalidated a federal statute seeking to enforce labor conditions at a slaughterhouse for chickens, the court held the relationship between labor conditions and chickens was too indirect, that chickens come to rest upon arrival at the slaughterhouse, thereby ending the stream of commerce, so whatever happened in the slaughterhouse was not Congress's business. In these early cases, the court approached problems formalistically, from cabining commerce to a specific zone to a direct-slash-indirect test. This continued in the cow case, Stafford v. Wallace, where the court articulated a stream-of-commerce test, essentially, stream-of-commerce conceptualizes commerce as a flow mostly concerned with the transportation and packaging of goods and not including acquisition of raw materials at the front end and retail of those goods at the tail end. However, with the Great Depression, there was political pressure for increased federal government intervention and the court increasingly deferred to Congress. A seminal case was NLRB v. Jones and Lachlan where the court adopted a realist approach and reasoned that interstate commerce is an elastic conception which required the court to think of problems not as falling on either side of a dichotomy but in a more nuanced fashion. Expansion of Congress's Commerce Clause power continued with Wickard in 1942 involving a farmer's refusal to comply with a federal quota. Wickard articulated the aggregation principle, that effects of the entire class matter rather than composites of the class, so even if the single farmer did not substantially affect interstate commerce, all farmers, the class to which he belonged, do, they compete with the national market. With recent cases like Lopez, 1995, and Morrison, 2000, there has been a return to formalism, i.e. legal tests created by the court to determine if Congress has overstepped its bounds. In both those cases, the federal statutes were invalidated. But in Gonzalez v. Reich, 2005, post-Lopez and Morrison, principles of Wickard were resurrected, leaving the future of Commerce Clause doctrine uncertain. The Spending Power Clause 1 of Article I, Section 8 grants Congress the power to tax and spend to provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, subject to the qualification that all taxes and duties be uniform across the country. Other Enumerated Powers other federal powers specifically enumerated by Section 8 of Article I of the United States Constitution, and generally considered exclusive to the federal government, are to coin money, and to regulate its value, to establish laws governing bankruptcy, to establish post offices, although Congress may allow for the establishment of non-governmental mail services by private entities, to control the issuance of copyrights and patents, although copyrights and patents may also be enforced in state courts to govern the District of Columbia and all other federal properties, to control naturalization and, implicitly, the immigration of aliens, to enforce by appropriate legislation the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the United States Constitution, a function of the Constitution's necessary and proper clause, to propose, by a two-thirds vote, constitutional amendments for ratification by three-fourths of the states pursuant to the terms of Article V. Members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives have absolute immunity for all statements made on the floor of Congress, Art. ISEC. 6. The Law School of America. The Law School of America. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America